welcome to the second edition of the uh, Society of Research Surgeons and Asset uh, podcast series on preparing for a career in academic surgery. Uh, on our panel today, we have um, myself, I'm um, James Glasby, I'm an NIHR doctoral research fellow in uh, global surgery, and I'm the Asset SRS representative. And I have with me Sivesh. Hi everyone, I'm Sivesh. I'm currently an academic foundation trainee based in Newcastle and I'm soon to start my ACF general surgery training in Birmingham. Nice to be here today. Thanks very much, Sivesh. And we're delighted to have on our on our uh, uh, panel today in, in the hotspot, uh, Professor Lorna Marston, um, who's a professor in uh, transplant surgery and is the membership secretary um, to the Society of, of Research Surgeons this year. Hello there, delighted to be here, if not a little bit nervous. Thank you. <laughs> so to kick things off, Professor Marston, would you like to just give us a brief overview of your introduction um, to your career as a Professor of Transplant Surgery in Edinburgh? Sure, thank you very much, uh, James and Sivesh. Um, so I have to say at the outset that um, it's, uh, it's, I'm a sort of, academic surgeon. Uh, my undergraduate training at St Thomas's Hospital in London and my basic surgical training on the Barts rotation also in London and, and really right from my undergraduate time I was inspired by surgeons and by surgery and particularly uh, general surgery and at that time my plan was to become a breast surgeon. I was appointed to the higher surgical training scheme in southeast Scotland with that as my clear intention to be a clinical breast surgeon. So you can see that things worked out really well for me. <laughs> so I was, it was made very clear to me when I joined the rotation that I would have to take some time out to undertake research. And it was with a degree of reluctance that I did that. But I was fortunate to be awarded a research fellowship from the Royal College of Surgeons of England uh, and to support my research over the two years. and. Somewhat surprisingly, I found myself really enjoying what was a laboratory-based research project, but in which I recruited patients onto my lab-based study. So I had a wonderful mix of looking after patients who were on the study, but also spending some time in the laboratory looking at small blood vessels in breast cancers. So I was awarded my MD at the end of that and returned to my clinical training by this time, having also um, managed to uh, accumulate or two children. So I returned to my <laughs> clinical training on a less full-time basis with a, a clear plan to be a breast surgeon still. And then I went to the transplant unit, uh, ostensibly to do endocrine surgery, but uh, the, the really the, the, you know, the fire was lit within a few months of being on the transplant unit. It's such an inspirational specialty. So such a huge range of interest within it, both clinical, academic, ethical. Um, and and, and it, was, it was a tough decision, particularly as with two children under five, not a sensible career decision. Um, but I really felt that I wanted to see if I could do it. And also I felt by then that I wanted to pursue a career in, in, with research in it. And uh, so that was really how it started out. I was a year five registrar. I threw myself into it as much as I could, both clinically and, and in the lab. 
and towards the end of my training applied for and was successful at getting a clinician scientist award through the Academy of Medical Sciences and the Health Foundation. And that really was probably the biggest springboard for me as a five-year research fellowship. So I then entered my consultant job with my own funding, uh, which really allowed me the capacity to set up the laboratory, set up the research, whilst also contributing to the, the clinical practice of the unit. And in those, at that stage, the unit had to agree to continue to um, support me as one of their consultant uh, team at the end of that, which I think is different now. And, and since then, really, I, I haven't looked back. I have loved my role as a kidney and pancreas transplant surgeon, continuing research. And actually what I've really enjoyed is taking research from the basic science from the laboratory into a clinical trial, which for me is sort of a culmination of more than a decade of work. Um, and I, one of the greatest honours I've had was to be elected uh, the first female president of the British Transplantation Society. Um, and I finished that term last year in, in oh gosh, no, maybe it was 2018, maybe now. No, mm -hmm. 2019. So I finished my term, a four-year term, two years as vice president, two years as president. That was really a tremendous honour to be elected by my peers to hold that, uh, that role. So that's, that's it really for me. Wow, what an exciting and illustrious career and uh, lots of different twists and turns to, o over the years. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wonder whether we could explore your, your, your research area perhaps in a, in a little bit more, more detail. And perhaps importantly, uh, how did you identify it? The, you know, the world of surgical academia is, is a diverse beast and it, it can be really daunting as a, as a young academic to know exactly what you should focus upon and, and perhaps worries about getting stuck within one remit too early. So we're really interested to hear about how you uh, found out what your sort of specific area of research was and uh, about, about your journey, really. Yeah, and a really important question, James. And I, I think the interesting thing for me was, and, and if I, I suppose if I was because when I came to transplant, years plus on angiogenesis in breast cancers and one of the biggest challenges we have in kidney transplantation is the loss of grafts through a kind of chronic process over a number of months or years after transplantation for which we have no treatment and it struck me that nobody had thought about what happens to the blood supply to the both the cortex and the medulla but that particularly that really precarious blood supply in part of the kidney in part of the kidney what happens to that uh, following transplantation and so I brought if you like my the angle that I developed in breast cancer and started in my own mind to ask questions about about that in, in kidney transplants um, and that really began to sow the seeds um, I, I think I went to see John Savile, who was a very eminent nephrologist, and he was also the head of college in, in of medicine and veterinary medicine in Edinburgh at the time. And, and I suppose, again, it's about listening to those subtle pieces of advice that you get. He gave me two pieces of advice. One was to learn a mouse model of kidney transplantation, which uh, is there was only one other centre in the UK that was doing it at that time. So he was encouraging me to use my surgical skills and my interest in surgery to develop a model that was really technically challenging, but
but with, which would transform the landscape of my research if I were successful. And the second thing he said is to go and speak to another neph academic nephrologist in, in Edinburgh, Jeremy Hughes. And those two pieces of advice were transformational for me. Um, and I took them both. And, and, and so within that work, which started with the small blood vessels, Jeremy is a, is a, is a I don't know what you, how, how I can put his passion and belief in the role of the macrophage in everything and anything. And so we combined forces really um, and looked at the changes in the blood vessels as the macrophage population changed and used this model of renal transplantation. So a model, three models, one of the early injury, ischemia reperfusion injury, which is what I went on to do more about. And that's what the clinical trial is looking at. And also a model of acute rejection and then this chronic process. So, I suppose it's about knowing what your strengths are and following that little seed of thought that you have, but be prepared to be flexible as you are offered opportunities to work with really good people. And I think for those of us that are clinical surgeons and academics, we've got to surround ourselves and work with good people. We can't do it on our own. Gone are the days when you could do it on your own. Well, it's so interesting to hear about how the, the team around you and, and perhaps just one experience with a, a mentor really represented a step mm. change in your, in your career. Mm. Uh, over to Savesh for the next question. So, so I think one of the things that you've highlighted is also collaborations um, key moving forwards and um, especially being a surgeon and pursuing a scientific research. I think a lot of trainees mm. now find that a struggle um, to balance both. What would what has been your biggest challenge um, in your career to date? So I thought, I thought about this when you said this to me ahead of time, and I, and I think you, you've sort of said it already. You want to be an excellent surgeon, first and foremost. You want to be excellent at patient care, but, and you also want to deliver excellent research. And, and for me, it was always with the, the focus on the patients and I, and I think as as clinicians that's the strength that we bring to the laboratory I work with brilliant basic scientists but they really value the eye that we have which is taking it back to what how, what does this mean for our patients maybe not in five years maybe not even in ten years but really keeping that focus and I think the other thing is, which we, we must remember, is that this all happens at a time when most of us have got small children or are thinking about embarking on that whole different phase of our lives. So trying to be that excellent clinician, and your NHS colleagues think you should be there all the time, to be that excellent academic, and your academic colleagues also think that if you're not in the lab all day, every day, then you're sky... <laughs> as well I've always say to people is that you've got all these plates that you're spinning or juggling whatever you do with them and I always say just you are going to drop plates just don't drop the same one every time is what I say you know rotate them. <laughs> so sometimes you've got to invest more in your clinical training if you know if you're concerned about your tech either technical or clinical ability invest in that for a while and then go back to the lab and and your children you know you've just got to remember that they do bounce back but just remember not to forget about them entirely in <laughs> so pick some bouncy plates i think that's uh, 
a very sage piece of advice. I think, yeah, plastic bits are better. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> Um, I was. I just wanted to pick up on. Uh, it's really interesting to hear that you had a period of your training where you were uh, less than full time, and we all know that um, mm. you know, family life and uh, work life balance is so important. And I think for trainees nowadays, it's particularly important. Perhaps um, uh, more and more recognised, e- even more so than I- in the past. And uh, many trainees are thinking about doing um, less than full time for part of their clinical training. Um, but actually, I don't think there's that many. Um, academic clinical trainees that have, have trod that pathway and it's, it's wonderful to hear about your experience. I wonder if you um, could share any sort of tips or advice for trainees that are thinking about exploring less than full-time training and, and also have a, a clinical academic interest. So it'd be great to hear about mm. your story. So I think it's it's really difficult. I, I, you know, I think there's no two ways about it because you're trying to achieve at, at, in two different areas professionally at a time when life at home is pretty busy. And I think what people make the mistake of of doing is they try to fit a full-time job into their three or four days. And I've heard that quite a lot, particularly with clinical trainees who are trying to get all their operating in in their three days or get all their on-call in so that they don't um, fall behind. But what you've got to remember is I was a less than full time trainee for a number of years because it took me a lot longer to get there, to to get my CCT. Um, And so you don't have to cram it all in. So and I think that's really important. And you should have admin time. If you're trying to develop a research uh, profile, then you need academic time. You need research time. And I think the other thing is be smart about trying to get small project grants. I I think that's a really key thing, get small grants that might fund for some support in the lab or pay for somebody else to do your immunohistochemistry or something so that you're not trying, you you have to, and the other thing I realize is you have to make sacrifices. And again, I would say make sacrifices in each of the three areas. Don't make all your sacrifices in one of those areas that you have to make, yeah, if you like compromise, you because you can't do everything. And, and um, I think the mistake that I hear most commonly from people who've tried to do it is they try and be not possible. Your training will just last longer anyway, so enjoy it. And at the end, you've been around a lot longer than those people, so actually you have accrued a lot of experience. That's wonderful advice. Thank you very much for sharing. Uh, I thought maybe next we could move on to um, an issue which is is close to my heart recently. Uh, so, uh, as as a, as, a, as an academic, um, you, you regularly face failure and rejection, whether it's papers that go through you know, five or six journals before finding a home, or a grant that takes you six, nine, twelve, eighteen, twenty four, thirty six months, and and you just can't get funded. And it strikes me that sort of resilience is, is one of the, the most difficult qualities to, to pick up and maintain. It can be a really sort of frustrating and difficult situation as a young surgeon scientist. I wonder if you had any um, experiences of overcoming failure and rejection and, and any sort of top tips for our, our listeners. Yeah, my most formative uh, failure was an early one. Okay, I, did, I had to resit my A level, so I, I 
a bond of it when I was at school. And I know that's really a long time ago and, and not perhaps, you know, what you were looking for. But that was an extraordinary lesson for me because I had to take a year out. I had to really think about what I wanted to do. And I had to go back and I had to do these blessed exams again. And, um, and it has taught me that whatever, however, and that's obviously at the time, that was the end of the world as far as I was concerned, as far as my parents were concerned. You know, it was just so. So if you learn that, whenever you learn that, you, um, you've got to and come out of it at the other end, I guess. You've got to keep those lessons in your in your heart, in wherever you keep your lessons, because <laughs> because it comes again. It comes, you know, as we know, it comes again and again. You don't get the job that you think you really deserved, the the papers, the grants. And if you are going to be an academic surgeon, then I think grants is like one in ten chance. So it's worse. It's almost like a lottery. You're probably slightly worse than some. So so <laughs> it, the chances are you're not going to get it. So you've almost got to assume you're not going to get it. But but that ability to, to bounce back is so important and arguably it's most important for our clinical practices. When we when something happens to a patient that we have opera who we have operated on, that going back into the operating field, going to see the family or the patient and talking to them about what happened and being honest and being prepared to say, I'm really sorry this has happened. Um, that that is that's where you really get your grit your resilience i think and and so it's and it's also about keeping things in perspective isn't it and and i i but but i think the grant which is going to make such a difference to your career is a massive thing the papers you just got to assume they're going to reject them until you know until you keep knocking on that door <laughs> and once i have argued with an editor once i have stood my ground about a paper because i just believed it was a really important paper and in the end i got it published in that journal but i had to be quite shirty about it wow <laughs> only once you right. only get it once <laughs> yeah yeah so i think you know as you sort of mentioned it's academic surgery it's a very difficult path and um, there's always a lot of ups and downs but i think going back to one of your previous answers about identifying uh, the right person to collaborate with or to work with to move a project forward and for all the um, academic trainees coming through so in the AFP ACF programs I think identifying the right mentor is useful and how did you um, go on to identify your right, right mentor or your, your supervisor for your MD or a PhD application um, as an academic uh, trainee? Mm. So I think um... I think the supervisor is really is really key. Um, obviously, um, I, there was one obvious academic breast surgeon that, that in in the unit where I was working, who I think when I arrived as a clinical trainee, he just he just was really interested in what I was doing and what my plans were. And but I think there are various things you've got to look out for for a supervisor in terms of their track record. Have they supervised ten people? Have they all written up their their PhDs or MDs, have none of them, um, and talk to some of the other people who've, who've been supervised them if you by them if you can. Um, you need to be interested in what they're doing, but I would also say that when you invest a lot of time in, in looking into an area of research, it becomes yours. I don't think you have to be passionate about the specific area to start with. I think you can become that because you read about, you become the expert in that area. 
and also look around and see who else is working with that person because if you've got an academic surgeon as a supervisor you're going to need somebody else a basic scientist or somebody else who's in works in that area who will probably have more time um, so that's very specifically for a supervisor i think a mentor is more challenging and i think that's where uh, that's where a real interest of mine comes in is how do you develop or have the opportunity to develop uh, really good mentoring relationships which are not supervision they're not uh, sort of benefaction or patronage they're a genuine mentor who will allow you to explore what it is you want to do and how you want to develop and I think that's that's really interesting I think it gives context but I certainly don't think it has to be somebody either in your own unit or in your own specialty but that's a whole different I mean that I could talk about that for a long time <laughs> webinar number three perhaps <laughs> <laughs> So I thought perhaps next we could move maybe a little bit further along the academic training pathway and um, those sort of academic clinical lecturers that um, are moving into the clinician scientist posts or senior mm. clinical lectureships mm. and are perhaps in a unit where there is you know some interest in research um, but perhaps you know there isn't a, a tremendous research infrastructure um, I, I wonder if you've got any advice for those trainees on how you should set up a really functional research department and uh, moving into early years consultancy and, uh, and building your team infrastructure yeah i mean that's a really good question again i've been lucky in the sense that in edinburgh there's a lot of research infrastructure and and i have always worked in a, a lab where there are uh, senior academics be they clinical or non-clinical uh, and so currently my PhD students are co-supervised by a basic scientist who's in the lab um, all of the time. So, so I think that's one thing. But I think, I think the key thing again is about, build, it's about the people you build around you. And, and again, it's getting those smaller grants which allow you to fund parts, uh, you know, a part of somebody's uh, working time. Um, and it doesn't matter how junior they are, it, it's about, it, it's them as individuals and their enthusiasm for the work they do to build them up, but you've got to ensure that the right support and supervision is in place for them. And I think, again, this is a challenge for us. So getting a really good postdoc, if, um, if you're set it, starting out, who can essentially do a lot of the work, not for you, but with you, uh, and, and, and part of it is being able to let go. You know, surgeons are we're quite controlling generally. We like to be in charge. <laughs> that's why we do what we do. And actually, if you're not in a lab all the time and somebody else is, then then you've got to let them show some leadership, and you've got to grow them up as as the leader. Because in five or ten years' time, if they are running your lab, that will massively bear fruit in a way that if you, you stifled them and kept control from the word go you just couldn't do it all you know it so it but you've got to remember you still want to be that excellent clinician uh, as well as setting up the lab so it's really the people you like everything isn't it it's the people who are about you and how you nurture them that that's what's going to make the difference 
Thank you. That's uh, some really exciting insight about you know not only sort of being a good leader, but also being able to support and grow your trainees around you and make mm -hmm. them um, future leaders. And I think one of the, 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 the big elephants in the room is uh, there's always this been all age debate as to whether research is for everyone. And there's a lot of um, naysayers around and even over the weekend recently on Twitter, there's someone always doesn't value the sort of academic trainees um, coming through the um, system. And in, in your view, do you think research and ac academia should be part of every surgical um, trainee, regardless of whether they pursue a academic training program? Yeah. So I think that's a that's a question that's been around, you know, uh, for for a long time. Um, and I think so. So I think from my point of view, I think it's interesting because I I was made to do research. It wasn't what I would have chosen to do at the outset. And so, and yet it was transformational. So, so, so I guess for some people who are kind of made to do research, it's going to make that difference. You learn a huge amount uh, of practical skills in doing research, uh, in terms of time management, um, in you know all kinds of things, literature review, um, all sorts of data analysis. That you learn so much, which is useful going forward. Do, do you require two or three years in full-time academia to get that? Well, arguably, no. There would be other ways of doing it. Um, but so, as well. So one of the uh, trainees I'm supervising currently is looking at, at um, experience of surgery for undergraduates and how that affects their career choices so she's doing a sort of qualitative research project with uh, interviewing surgeons and undergraduates and I'm one of her supervisors but thankfully a qualitative researcher is another one um, so I think it's also about understanding that there are all kinds of different contributions that people can make and and it's a big investment of of money and I guess it this these times are going to be challenging in terms of funding of research so arguably one should be investing in people who will remain in academia um, but I think the experience of surgical trainees in research is, is essential and and I also would say that giving them a period of time to step away from the kind of busyness of a clinical training program it's really important if they are going to learn effectively about research, whether that could be accomplished in one year with a master's, as some people do in education particularly, but that's another possibility. I don't think everybody has to do a PhD or even an MD, but I think getting some experience and allowing people to step away from the clinical practice for a while is valuable. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. Yeah, it sounds like a, a broad skill set, and it's wonderful to hear about your uh, your experiences and all, all the things that your uh, pathway through academia has taught you. And that's certainly something I person, personally want to to emulate in the future. I think we've not gone long left for our, our our podcast today, so I thought perhaps I could pin you down just uh, one one last question, and and that would be if there was just one thing that you'd want to know as a trainee that you didn't know then, but but do know now. Uh, what, what, what would that be to help our help our listeners? So I think I think as a trainee, I spent a huge amount of time worrying that I wasn't keeping up with everybody else. So everyone else in the training program was doing all this amazing stuff, 
and I was just I was that sort of it's that imposter isn't it that that sort of feeling that you've got to do so much to to really keep on on the track um, so I think it's about if I I think I would have relaxed a bit and said look I'm doing my best and I love what I do and I think I think if you love what you do you give it even more and, and arguably you're not going to do surgical training unless you enjoy it because it's not that kind of job um, so I, I think I would say yes be um, proactive but maybe just don't don't worry as much as we all tend to worry I think is what I would say enjoy it sounds like the the, the perfect advice and, and a great end to our, our podcast today so we've been really honored to have you with us today Professor Marson and um, thank you very much for, for sharing your your in-depth insights uh, Sebastian, any any closing comments or thoughts? Um, no, I've I've really enjoyed this, Professor Martin. Thank you very much. I think that um, there's a great um, great amount to to learn from from this whole um, conversation for all all surgical trainees keen to pursue academic, and I've really enjoyed this myself. Thank you. So uh, well, we'll, thank we'll, you both very much. It's a pleasure to have you with us, and um, so so that's it for our second SRS Asset uh, podcast, and uh, it'd be great if you could tune in for our our third edition coming very soon.